Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Habakkuk called God and the Problem of Evil. So let's turn in our Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, as Dr. Newfeld gives us a message entitled, Confidence in Our God. Some of you might be wondering why it is I've decided to spend three weeks on an obscure book in the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk. You know, if you were to ask the majority of church people today without looking, tell me what's in the book of Habakkuk, and I suspect you'd get a blank stare. I mean, who knows? Isn't that the book found in a grouping of books that include books like Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Haggai? And we have no idea what's in those books either, and that's a shame, because today I'm going to draw a direct link between your church today and the prophet Habakkuk. Do you have a missions program in your church? Well, thank Habakkuk. You train people in your church, helping them to lead someone to saving faith. Thank Habakkuk. Are you convinced that the only way to get right with God is by faith and by faith alone? Well, thank Habakkuk. Indeed, I want to, for starters, draw a direct line from from the prophet Habakkuk in around 2600 BC in Jerusalem to the year 1517 in Martin Luther in Germany and the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Now, does that sound far-fetched? Well, let's see if I can help. The happiest day in Martin Luther's life was when he discovered from Habakkuk and from the Apostle Paul God's righteousness. Luther said it was like opening up paradise to God, and as a result, he finally had the lens to see what the entirety of the Bible was all about. And now, Luther said that he ran through the Bible with ecstasy and that a wide door into heaven had been opened up to him. And as a result, Luther was able to show the church what it had slowly forgotten. That is the very gospel itself. But once the gospel was recovered, soon we were leading men and women to faith in Christ, and soon a worldwide missionary program was pursued, leading to the salvation of countless millions of men and women from every language and race and people group and ethnic background. And all of that can be traced back to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Have I got your attention? Well, I hope so. And if you still today don't know how to be sure that your sins are forgiven, that you will not be condemned along with the world, I want to take you back to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Boy, I hope that I have your attention. All of what I'm saying might sound surprising. After all, we started this book and we saw that it's about a prophet's concern about moral evil that was on the rise in Jerusalem and in Judah. And he wondered what God was doing about it. After learning that God was indeed doing something about it, he was raising up the Babylonian Empire to punish Judah. Habakkuk wonders how God can use an evil empire to do his will. And of course, if the Babylonians were going to burn Jerusalem to the ground, what of all the righteous people in that city? Would they perish along with the wicked? And then a part of God's answer is found in Habakkuk 2 verse 4. The first half of the verse reads, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. That's a reference to the Babylonian Empire with with an acknowledgement that even though they will inadvertently do the work of God, Babylon will continue to remain a powerful and arrogant people. But now to the second half of the verse, which which is a contrast to the proud, self-assured attitude of the Babylonians. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4b says, But the righteous shall live by faith. 2,600 years later, 
Paul the Apostle was writing a letter to the early Christian community in Rome. Rome was then the capital of a great empire covering many nations. I mean, if there ever was a powerful, proud, and arrogant people, well, it was Rome with her expansive empire, her engineering prowess, and her invincible armies. But a Christian community had been formed there, and the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, wanted to connect with them. You know, one of the reasons he writes them is simply to encourage and strengthen them. Another reason for writing is he wants to go to Rome and preach the gospel there and in this way strengthen the church there by winning more men and women to faith in Christ. And a third reason, well, Paul has ambitions to use the church in Rome as a springboard to beginning a work of missions in faraway Spain. He will preach the gospel in lands that have never heard it before. But none of those things can be accomplished if he doesn't write the Roman Christians. And because Paul has never met with these believers before, he thinks it advisable to write a letter which contains a basic outline of what he preached in every city that he's gone to in the past. Wherever Paul went, he presented the Christian faith and established churches. But what is it that he actually preached? And the answer is, he preached what he wrote down and sent to the Roman Christians. And so the book of Romans is a primer for basic Christianity. It is, if you will, Christianity 101. It's, it's the ABCs of the Christian faith. And you don't have to read very far into the book until you get to the heart of the matter, or for our purposes, to the theme of this book. It's found in Romans 1, 16 to 17. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I don't think I can overestimate how important those words have become in history. But putting that matter aside for just a moment, would you notice that in those two verses, Paul uses the word for on four occasions? Now, if you're familiar with grammar, that indicates that there are in those two short verses four subordinate clauses, and each subordinate clause supports or shines a light on what has gone before. Now, if you don't know what it is that I've just said, well, hang on, I'm going to explain that. Paul has been telling the Romans that he's very eager to preach the gospel in Rome, and, and the reason he's so eager, and here's our first subordinate clause, the reason he's so eager is because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Indeed, he's quite the opposite. He is overwhelmingly proud of the good news about Jesus, so proud he just won't shut up about it. That's why he's so eager to preach in Rome, his, his deep-seated boasting that the good news about Jesus is the best news that the world has ever heard. Ah, but now we come to our second subordinate clause. I mean, why is Paul so proud of the gospel? Now, the answer to that is that there is a power in the gospel that results in the salvation of everyone who believes. As Paul is going to explain, men and women are sinners, rebels against God. God is provoked by human sin, and he will bring every human being to judgment. But the gospel saves everyone who believes from the judgment to come and delivers them into eternal life. But why does the gospel bring salvation to everyone who believes? And that brings us to the third subordinate clause, because, or for, the gospel reveals or showcases God's righteousness. It showcases how utterly glorious and good and, and righteous God actually is. And that leads to the fourth subordinate clause. How do we know that it's true 
that God is more glorified in the saving news of Jesus than in any other thing. What's the evidence for that? Ah, That's where the fourth subordinate clause comes in. The reason we know that is because 2,600 years before Christ died, God had already shown that in a vision to a prophet by the name of Habakkuk. And it was written down in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And Paul writes, as it is written. Well, written where? Written in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. That's where it's written. The just or the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I hope, I, I really hope that you're scratching your head a bit because that shows your thinking right now. Habakkuk wanted to know, among other things, what's going to happen to godly people in an ungodly city. You know, Jerusalem had become a city and a culture of overwhelming moral evil, and therefore, God was sending the Babylonians to destroy the city as his judgment against it. But what of the righteous? What would happen to them on the day of judgment? And so we need to picture the prophet Habakkuk stationing himself at one of the watchtowers of the old city of Jerusalem, and he's waiting for God to show him what he was doing. And then in a vision, God explains. Among other things, God tells Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. But how does that answer lead to Paul's preaching of the good news about Jesus, that Christ died for our sins, and that the only way to receive forgiveness is to place our confidence and trust not in what you can do for God or in how righteous you are, but rather in what Christ has accomplished for you. Indeed, if anyone wants to be saved from the hour of judgment, they're going to have to place their confidence not in any other thing but in this one fact, that Christ in his death on the cross has paid for the sins of all who trust in him. And Paul says, the reason I know that is because Habakkuk spoke about that in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. It doesn't matter where you live. The secular culture around the globe has taken its hold in our communities. It's clear that as Christians, we can't isolate ourselves from the culture around us. We need to be set apart, but how can we do that? If Christians are called to do more than just condemn what is wrong, how do we do it? There's a culture that exists today that is destructive and harmful. So how can we live as an alternative to it? How can we truly live out the alternative lifestyle that God has called us to live? Well, the first step is to open the Bible and see what God's Word has to say. In Dr. Newfeld's series, An Alternative Lifestyle, Dr. John does just that by diving into the book of Philemon. And we're excited to offer the series to you on CD as our gift. To get your copy of An Alternative Lifestyle, all you need to do is visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. I've been connecting Habakkuk with Paul and then Luther and then with us. Let me get back to Martin Luther for a moment. Writing about Romans, Luther says, the sum and substance of this letter is to pull down, to pluck up, and to destroy all wisdom and righteousness of the flesh, and to affirm and enlarge the reality of sin, however unconscious we may be of its existence. See, Martin Luther, after having studied the book of Romans, believed that if ever a person is to get right with God, then step number one, or the first thing that needed to happen, 
was that you had to utterly destroy any confidence that you might have in yourself. You have to convince someone that their sins are so enormous and so utterly outrageous, so morally corrupt, that in the presence of God, your obscenity to holiness so that you throw up your hands in terror and fear the judgment of God and despair of any hope of resolving the problem. The need is to see yourself as hopeless and out of that find no other place for confidence than in God himself and in his free gift of grace in the cross. But how did Habakkuk help to bring about this mindset? What was it in the vision that he saw as he was mounted on a watchtower in Jerusalem that opened the door to that understanding? You know, while the Apostle Paul, having carefully considered Habakkuk's revelation, thought this revelation crystallized the gospel of grace. But how? Remember again Habakkuk's time. Most likely, King Jehoiakim was on the throne in Jerusalem, and what bothered Habakkuk was that it appeared to him that the wicked king, along with his nobles and other powerful people, were getting away with their crimes against God. And in consequence of their leadership, the entire culture was becoming corrupt. And so the prophet's complaining to God. He's objecting to to what he sees as God idly looking on, and Habakkuk waits from his watchtower. And of course, God answers in his time. The God of Israel is never idle or a cavalier about evil. The plans that he has devised are so far-reaching that all the enemies of God are about to fall into his trap. Not one of them will escape. Indeed, so far-reaching are the plans of God that the Babylonians also will in due season have their day of judgment. Indeed, from Habakkuk, we learn that all sinners will be punished. Not one sinner will escape the meticulous judgment of God. And might I add here, that a great many people in our day simply don't understand this truth. God is not now, nor has he ever been in the past, nor will he ever become tolerant of evil. God is right now patient with evildoers, extending opportunities to repent, even putting roadblocks in their way. But make no mistake, he is not tolerant of evil. He punishes evil. If you don't get that from Habakkuk, you simply haven't heard his message. Indeed, that's what Paul says in Romans. Just like Habakkuk, he wants us to be aware of our own innate sinfulness and of the righteousness of a God who will not tolerate sin. And now let's return to Habakkuk 2 verse 4. It's the duty and privilege of the people of God to trust. The point of Habakkuk is not that we at all times figure out what God's up to. Rather, it's our duty to trust God. But God does so much more than tell the prophet to trust. He adds to that, in the rest of the book, a picture. Habakkuk chapter 3 pictures God's presence descending from Mount Paran, in which both heaven and earth are flooded with the splendor and, and brightness and glory of God. And everything trembles and everything's being torn apart. And if you read Habakkuk rightly, you'll see him wondering, well, upon whom is the anger of God's righteous judgment going to fall? And then comes the answer. God destroys the wicked in Judah. He he also destroys the Babylonians, but he will save or he will rescue his people from the hour of wrath and judgment. And as we're going to see as we continue to study this book, Habakkuk has no further questions for he's in awe of God. In the end, he will say that even when the fig tree does not flourish, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Paul accordingly could not have chosen a better prophecy from which to quote than that of Habakkuk. The passage fits the situation in Romans exactly. 
You see, in every age and in every circumstance, the greatest of all questions is not why evil is allowed to flourish. For as we've seen that evil flourishes under the permission of God only to be destroyed in God's perfect timing. That's not the big question. The big question is, what must I do not to fall under the hand of God in the day of judgment? What must I do in order to be counted among the righteous? And God's answer through Habakkuk is central. The righteous shall live by faith. You'll have to live your life confident in God and not in yourself. Now, in Habakkuk's day, the powerful rulers of Jerusalem did trust in themselves. And in Paul's day, the issue was the Pharisees teaching about the law. You see, the Pharisees had said in Paul's day, you know, if you keep the law, God's going to be pleased with you. And again, the issue remains the same one. Condemned people trust in their own ability to please God through the rigid discipline of law-keeping. So let's move forward to Martin Luther. You see, in Luther's day, the church said, you have to trust in the works of the church, mediated through the sacraments in keeping with the rules of the church. The Roman Catholic Council of Trent taught that a man or a woman is justified by works or by their own righteousness. You have to do it. Again, the issue is the same. Trust in yourself and in your own abilities. And in our day, the issue is no different at all. You know, I sometimes hear some so-called teachers of faith frequently talk about what we must choose to do. You know, I, for my part, wish that we'd stop putting all the emphasis on the power of our choice, as in, you must decide for Jesus, as if everything depends on us and on our decision. See, truth be told, you don't even know how to decide for Jesus. And if you found out, well, you found out that it involves renouncing all the sins in your life, well, you wouldn't do it. Again, we put the onus on what we do rather than what Christ has done in the cross and what the Holy Spirit does when he draws sinful hearts to the cross. You see, we need to tell people the truth. You need to despair of your ability to save yourself, either by your actions or your morality or even by your own choices. All this leads you nowhere, or worse, it leads you into a headlong fight with God. And it's a fight that you're going to lose. Instead, the righteous live by faith. They simply trust God to save. They've run out of their own options. And what is faith? Faith is confidence in what God does. The righteous will live by confidence in God in what he has done. So what has he done? Well, first, Christ perfectly kept the commands of God. He did that for you so that his sinless life might be credited to your record. Furthermore, Christ died for your sins, or Christ was punished for your sins so that you would not have to suffer the punishment. Well, then what must you do? (laughs) You must become confident in what he did. The just shall live by his faith. I have two stories I want to communicate. See, I knew a man, a Christian leader, whose wife developed breast cancer. I mean, they were both shocked, as you might imagine, and they shared their struggle with others and requested that people pray for her. My friend told me it stunned him how many seemingly well-meaning people suggested to both of them that God was punishing them for some kind of a sin they must have committed. Now, Now, I know this attitude is hurtful and it shows a shocking lack of compassion, but behind this is the attitude that if only this couple had been more godly, they'd have been spared the ravages of cancer. You know, and behind that 
is the idea that the righteous do not live by faith, but they live by their own works. And behind this is the idea that Habakkuk and Paul and all the prophets and apostles had it wrong, that we live by our own godliness. Now my second story. I remember years ago praying with a woman who had just surrendered her life to Christ. And she had multiple necklaces around her neck. And and after her prayer, she told me that the necklaces were magical and spiritual powers to ward off evil. And without me even prompting her, she smiled and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take all these things off because I know I actually don't need them anymore. The righteous live not by anything, but by a confident trust in God. See, how about you? You know, there's an old hymn that the church used to sing, and it was written way back in the year 1775 by a Christian pastor named Augustus Toplady. Let me quote several lines from it. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. If you've never given your life to Christ, may I suggest to you that today, you trust in Christ and not in yourself. You lay in ruins every confidence you've ever had in your own abilities and say to Christ, I trust in you and in your cross alone. Amen. John, as you talked, you talked about Paul and he references Habakkuk and that. Is it important for us to understand the Old Testament the way we should, I guess, to get a fully rounded understanding of the gospel? Yeah, I think this is how uh, Christian discipleship should grow. I think when someone is new in Christ and they're learning the, the scriptures for the first time, we would start them in the New Testament. We want to make sure that they, they, they know the accounts of Jesus. They should know the book of Romans very well. So, you know, the Gospels and Romans really should form the basis of our discipleship. But as we get to know the New Testament, soon we'll come to realize that there are so many gaps that are missing because the the New Testament contains literally hundreds and hundreds of quotes from the Old Testament. So uh, it's not until we begin to then study the Old Testament that we get these aha moments and we say, aha, that's what Paul had in mind when he said the just shall live by faith. And, you know, that's uh, what uh, Moses had in mind when he said that Abraham, uh, you know, that he uh, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So let's learn the Old Testament well after we've learned the new, but let's make sure that a part of Christian growth is learning the Old Testament. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The world we live in is a fallen one. Bad things are happening all around us, but why? How could a God who loves us allow evil to exist in the world? These are the questions that Dr. John Newfeld answers in his series, God and the Problem of Evil. It's become popular for people to say that they're angry at God, but have we stopped to think about how God feels about us? What happens when you shake your fist at God when life gets hard? When we are in seasons of despair, what should our response to our Creator be? God will always act in a way that's consistent with His character, not with culture. Join us every day for more Bible teaching you can trust from Back to the Bible Canada. And if you'd like to support the ministry or receive more information about all the free resources available, 
call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.